Well, I have the honor today of introducing Nick Parsons. Uh, super excited to have him here. He'll actually be here for several Sundays. Um, for those of you that don't know Nick, he is a really longtime friend of Current, and he also has an awesome ministry working with church plants and startups all across the Bay Area in his role as managing director of the Stratum Foundation. I can't wait to hear what God has put on his heart. Uh, he's going to come up after the reading, but can you join me right now in giving him a super warm welcome? <laughs> Well, today we are starting a new series in the Psalms, and the scripture reading is Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that the sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Thank you. Good morning, guys. Let's start off with a quote. Let me write the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes its laws. Andrew Fletcher said that. And one of the things that's really intriguing to me about this quote is that Andrew Fletcher was not a poet. He was not a songwriter. He was a politician. Uh, Fletcher lived in Scotland in the late 1600s and the early 1700s, and he was a member of the Scottish Parliament, and he was active in creating and promoting legislation. And so you have Andrew Fletcher, someone committed to politics, committed to preserving, protecting, improving his country, and yet he sees the limit of politics. And he says provocatively that the songs that a nation sings are more important than the laws that people like him write. And I think what Fletcher uh, is, is pointing us towards is that more than our laws, it's our songs. It's the words we sing that shape us. They form us, which is why the book of Psalms is so critical and why we chose to study it for the next four weeks. Uh, the words that we heard read from Lauren just a, a few minutes ago from Psalm 1 are actually from a song. Uh, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the book of Psalms is actually a collection of 150 songs or poems or hymns. Uh, it's a book designed to be prayed, a book meant to be sung. A variety of Jewish leaders contributed. They wrote these psalms. They were gathered together in this collection, which is the largest and the longest book in the Bible. And then the Jewish people would collectively come together and they would sing these songs in the temple and in synagogues. It was like a hymn book or a Spotify playlist for the Jewish people, okay? And early Christians, though, they continued this practice as well. And for most of the last 2,000 years of church history, Christians were reciting and singing the Psalms. Sometimes they call that collection the Psalter. And that's been a primary way that Christians have worshiped and prayed. For thousands of years, this book, the Psalms, has been central in inspiring and shaping Jewish and Christian times of corporate singing, as well as many millions of people's personal time of prayer. Uh, but I think for most of us, uh, even if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus today, I'm not sure that the book of Psalms holds the same place in our lives. We might be out of step with history, but, but I think in ignoring the Psalms, I think we're missing out of this, in this incredible tool that God has given us to seek him, to know him, to learn how to pray, and to see ourselves and our world transformed. 
The Psalms are really, really useful. They're really, really interesting, and they are a great place to start, to start learning to pray, to start learning how to sing and worship. They're a great place to start when you don't have words or songs to sing. And I want to share with you a series of quotes about the book of Psalms from leaders in church history to show you just how important uh, Christians have understood the Psalms to be, okay? So first, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, jump-started Protestant Christianity. Uh, Luther loved the Psalms. He called them a little Bible, and he said this about the Psalms. The Psalms set out in the briefest and most beautiful form all that is to be found in the Bible. The Psalter is the favorite book of all the saints. Each person... Whatever his circumstances may be, finds in Psalms words which are appropriate to the circumstances in which he finds himself and meets his needs as adequately as if they were composed. Or John Calvin, famous French theologian, uh, very devoted to the Psalms as well, he encouraged churches to sing the Psalms every week and to use them in personal and gathered worship. He said this of the Psalms, uh, I have been accustomed to call this book, and I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscience, conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which minds of men are wont to be agitated. Uh, the fourth century uh, theologian Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, uh, very influential uh, leader in the early church, uh, described the Psalms like this. He said, the Psalms are a gymnasium which is open for all souls to use, where the different Psalms are like different exercises set out before him. In that gymnasium, in that stadium of virtue, he can choose the exercises that will train him best to win the victor's crown, Psalms as CrossFit. Um, and finally, the African theologian Athanasius, uh, born in Egypt in 296 AD, he said this of the Psalms, and I really like this one. All the books of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, are in, are Old and Testament New, are inspired by God and useful for instruction. But to those who really study it, the Psalter yields a special treasure. For besides the characteristics with which it shares with others, it has this peculiar marvel of its own that within it are represented and portrayed in all their great variety the movements of the human soul. We are bidden elsewhere in the Bible also to bless the Lord and to acknowledge him. Here in the Psalms we are shown the way to do it, and with what sort of words his majesty may meetly be confessed. In fact, under all the circumstances of life, we shall find that these divine songs suit ourselves and meet our own soul's need at every turn. Friends, with the book of Psalms, God has given us a powerful tool, a book of songs and prayers uniquely designed to shape, inspire, and transform us. The Psalms meet us wherever our hearts are, and they teach us how to pray and worship. Do you ever feel like you don't know how to pray or what to pray? Do you ever have like complex emotions that you don't know how to bring to God or how to pray through? Am I the only one? I do. The Psalms are designed to help us with just those kinds of moments. When we don't have words to pray, we can read, we can pray, we can sing the words of the Psalms. That's why they're in the Bible. It's a unique book in the Bible. It's kind of different than the other ones. They're not just words to be read passively. They are a tool to be used. And so wherever you find yourself in this season of life today, the Psalms are a great place to start. And so today I want to do a couple things. I want to give us a three-part framework for how we can understand and utilize the book of Psalms for our benefit. So kind of like a, a framework to how to understand a psalm. 
And then thinking about these three things, they're going to help us understand and apply the Psalms to their fullest. And then after that, we're going to use that framework to go through Psalm 1, that Psalm that was read, and quickly study and pray through it together. Sound good? All right, let's do it. So a three-part process for understanding and using the Psalms. First thing, the Psalms are someone's words to God. This may seem self-evident, but it's a good thing to remember. Before we understand a psalm's content, we need to remember its context. Before we apply the psalms, we have to understand that they were written by a specific person for a purpose in a particular place and time. Sometimes I think that's helpful to just, someone wrote this someplace at some time, imagine that in your mind. And while Psalm 1 is a bit of an introduction to the book, many of the psalms actually have a preface, if you're looking in your Bible or Bible app at the very beginning, that tells us about the author or the purpose or the historical context in which that psalm was written. And knowing more about a psalm's context can help us fully understand its meaning and not misapply its truths. Uh, it's also helpful to recognize the kind of literature that the psalms are. Uh, the Bible contains you know, historical books, letters, collections of laws, speeches, uh, as well as kinds of poetry we find in the psalms. Uh, each one of these different kinds of literary genre affect the way we read and understand the content of the Bible. Uh, think about it, if you get a text message from a friend, you're gonna read that differently than a history book, right? Uh, if you read, you read a le legal contract differently than a poem. Uh, yesterday, my lease ex expired and moved from like annual to month by month, and so I like parsed through every little bit of, a, is everything okay, am I still housed on you know, Monday? Yes, I am, but I read that very differently than I would read a poem. You, you would treat these kinds of literature differently, right? The same is true with a variety of literary forms we find in the Bible. And when it comes to the Psalms, we know that they're poetic in form. They are intended to be sung or prayed. They often have repetition. They often reflect emotion. Or they have a Hebrew, a unique Hebrew poetic structure that's sometimes different than what we would have in uh, English or in the West. And, and knowing these different aspects sometimes affect how we read or understand or use the Psalms. And we're going to encounter some of that unique poetic structure as we study together over the next four weeks. And so the Psalms are first, someone's words to God, but second, the Psalms are God's words to us. The Psalms are God's words to us. After we've examined a given Psalm's historical background, after we've considered the author and the audience, after we've looked into the poetic structure and how that might reveal its points or its emphases, we begin to ask and look at not just how these words were at some point someone else's words to God, we can begin to ask how these words might be a message from God to us. Because the Psalms are not just other people's words to God, they are God's words to us, written and inspired through human authors, but intended for our eyes and ears. And, and there are many ways that you can begin to interpret and understand the Psalms as God's words to us. Let me give you two examples or two primary ways we can do that. Uh, the first way we can do this is draw a universal principle from the psalm that applies both to the original situation of the audience and to any audience. You might do this when you're already reading the Bible. What was going on then? What was the, the principle that applied there? And does that principle apply here? We can look for principles. We can apply them that apply then and then also apply now. Uh, for instance, if it's probably the most well-known psalm, Psalm 23, David, he writes this. This is Psalm 23. Let me read it for you. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Anybody heard that before? Familiar, right? 
It's a very well-known passage, and at least one universal principle is pretty clear, that when we face difficulty, fear, anxiousness, or death, this is often a, a psalm read at funerals, we can remember that just like he was with the psalmist, God promises to also be our shepherd, who is present with us to comfort us in our times of trouble. We can read this psalm as God's message to us. God's saying on Psalm 23 that he is our shepherd, just like he was the shepherd of the psalmist. That is how this kind of universal principle approach can be used to interpret and apply the psalms. But there's a second way we can understand the psalms as God's words to us. It's that we can look for how a psalm points to Jesus, whom later biblical writers will teach that all of scripture points towards. So it's sort of like, what hints do we get? What clues do we get about Jesus when we read the psalms that we might discover about him later or might point us towards him? We can read the psalms and look to find Jesus in them. In fact, what's really interesting is Jesus understood the Psalms and used them this way. We have examples of that. Uh, After Jesus died and resurrected from the dead, he appeared to his disciples, and he taught them about who he was. He taught them why he died, what his purpose was, uh, and what their purpose was in light of who he was. Let me read to you. Luke 24, verses 44 through 47. Jesus says this to the disciples. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus taught that all of the Bible, the whole Old Testament, including the Psalms, points to him. Uh, Indeed, if you read the New Testament, the the Old Testament uh, passage that's most quoted or referenced in the New Testament is Psalm 110. Uh, Many of these psalms are actually even explicitly about this future Messiah and King that will one day come and save God's people. And so when we read the psalms, when we engage the psalms, we should look for ways to see how a given psalm points us towards Jesus, reminds us of Jesus, hints about him, directs us towards him. And so the Psalms, they are someone's words to God, but they are also God's words to us. And lastly, number three, the Psalms are our words back to God, to one another, and to the world. Now we get to this unique, most unique aspect of the Psalms, which is that they're intended to not only be someone else's words to God, not only to be God's words to us, they're meant to be our words, they're meant to be our words to be sung and prayed to make them our own. Uh, The Psalms are meant to be our words back to God, our words of encouragement to one another, our words to be sung to a watching world. This part of the Bible is explicitly participatory. We are supposed to be joining in the singing and praying of these words and using them as our own. And while all parts of the Bible are to be read, meditated on, understood, and applied, the Psalms are uniquely written to be used aloud, to be prayed and to be sung. This is the normal way Christians engage with the Psalms throughout history as tools that God has given to shape our prayers and give us confidence when we pray. Do you ever worry when you pray that, like, you're not praying right? Has this ever happened to you? Like, is it okay to pray this? Uh, Sometimes when my kids pray, you know, they start to pray, like, when they're little, especially, you know, they close their eyes. Uh, That's not in the Bible, by the way. I don't know why they do that. You know, close their eyes, you know, and they pray, and, you know, God, thank you for my Legos. Thank you for Steph Curry. And they open their eyes, look around, is it okay? Is it okay to pray? Is that okay to pray? I think we all feel that way sometimes, right? And side note, it's always okay to thank God for Steph Curry. It's always okay. (laughs) Never a bad time. But seriously, we sometimes wonder, is what I want to pray okay? 
Is it okay to ask God for something, like a spouse or a job or for someone who's bothering you to get hit by a bus? Is that okay? Well, that's what the Psalms teach us. They give us model prayers, examples to follow, and sometimes the content is surprising. They pray for the bus of their day to hit some people. Sometimes the psalmist prays things that we wouldn't expect. And in the psalms, we find prayers that are just totally human and yet inspired by God, which is why they are such beautiful model prayers. It's hard to mess things up when you're praying God's words back to him. And sometimes we can read the scripture and engage it, and, and it feels flowery or like it's, it's something. But I want you to imagine being very human, very human the psalms are, with very real human emotions designed for us to emulate. And for many Christians, uh, this is myself, my own practice, and something I would encourage you to maybe consider. I try to pray through the psalms on a regular basis, like as a normal part of my daily engagement with God. Uh, I pick a psalm, uh, maybe read a little bit about it. There's a number of really excellent books. Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller have a great one, The Songs of Jesus, uh, if you're interested, that walks through all of the psalms in a year. It's kind of like a devotional book. I read a little bit about a psalm, and then I read a portion of the psalm, and then I'll just pray whatever's on my heart in light of what the psalm said, working my way through each verse and, and just praying whatever is on my heart and my mind until I'm finished. And it doesn't take a ton of time, but it helps keep my mind from wandering off. So like this morning, I have two older teenagers. They just got back from a Christian camp. They had a great time. And I prayed this morning. I was praying in the psalms. I was just praying, reading, and then praying, Lord, thank you for the way this, this camp encouraged my kids. You know, it, it's a great way to focus our prayers and to give us like a framework for how to pray. And so if you don't know what to pray or how to pray, it's a great place to start. And maybe it's something you could experiment with over the next few weeks. Or maybe you have someone in your life that's just like struggling and you don't know how to pray for them. Um, pick a psalm. Pray through it with their name. Put their name in it. Text them and tell them, hey, you know, I know you're going through a hard time today. I prayed Psalm 16 for you. We can make the psalms our words of encouragement to one another. You might even want to consider, yeah, taking time each day to pray through a psalm yourself. Just open up a Bible, pick a psalm, read aloud, pray, see what happens. Make these words your words to God. When I don't know what to pray, this happens a lot, I open the psalms, I read and pray them. And I find myself being inspired by the words, by gaining confidence, and even finding words of my own to pray. And in those times when I don't have the words because I'm tired or because I'm, I'm down, the Psalms alone become my prayers, and I'm confident because they're God's words that they can also be my words back to him. Okay, so we have this three-stage process for understanding and using the Psalms. They are someone's words to God. There's a context we can learn from. They're God's words to us. God speaks to us through them, and they can be our words back to God, to one another and to the world. But let's now turn our focus to Psalm 1. Let's like lay that over Psalm 1. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can open it, turn um, to that. We're going to use those three points as we walk through the psalm. Also come on the screen, but if you want to look at it in a physical way, go ahead and do that. This psalm uh, is the first psalm, uh, Psalm 1. And so first, someone's words to God. Uh, we don't know the author of Psalm 1. There's very little indication of the context that the psalm was written. Many scholars believe this is composed as an introduction to the book, and it kind of lays out some themes that will be found throughout the book of Psalms. Uh, we can observe that this psalm, Psalm 1, has a very simple composition. It's not a complicated passage. Uh, the first half, verses 1 through 3, focuses on the righteous. And the second half, verses 4 through 6, provides a contrast between the, the, the wicked and the righteous. And the author is kind of laying out two contrasting paths, 
two different, two different people whose lives lead in two different directions, the righteous and the wicked. The way of a person who flourishes and prospers and the way of the wicked who ultimately doesn't endure and will perish. Uh, verses three through four lay this contrast out really clearly. It says about the righteous, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not sure how you hear these words, but they might feel a little intense, right? Like, you don't usually go around describing people that way today. Like, that guy's a jerk. He's wicked, you know? Um, maybe, maybe that's like a 90s. I don't know. Anyways, skip that. Uh, but we might not use those words, right? We don't use words like wicked. I think we might, though, have categories like that in our mind, similar categories. We might use a different word. We see in our world people who are unjust, who are selfish, who are deceptive, who are abusive. People in your own life might come to mind when you think of that, even some real serious stories, some real serious moments, even moments of you know, big T or little t trauma. Uh, if not, you know, if you don't have something like that comes to mind, think of some of these news stories from 2022. So I reviewed the most read articles on CNN in 2022. Uh, about a third of the stories were about the Russian invasion and the war with Ukraine. There's some challenging things happening there, right? About 10% of the articles were about mass shootings in Virginia, Buffalo, Subway in Brooklyn, LGBTQ club in Colorado, parade in Illinois, elementary school in Texas. There were stories of political corruption, of climate change crisis, of celebrity drug overdoses and suicides, Paul Pelosi being attacked in his home, bombings, assassinations abroad. Uh, and again, think beyond just 2022. Think of in our just local world, Hill, the tech scandals with Sam Bankman-Fried at FTX or Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. Think even a little bit more broadly over the last few years. We live in a world where Me Too became a popular hashtag. So, so popular is that experience that everyday women could just say, yes, Me Too. Think about that. While we may not use the term wicked, we can look out in our world and see the same categories that the author of Psalm 1 lays out. There are people who commit evil actions, and whatever we call them, they are not righteous. They are not good. We see around us abuse, theft, corruption, violence, and these actions in some very real sense, and in some very real sense, the people who commit them, they are not righteous. They are the opposite of righteous and good. And so the psalmist writing here, full of real human emotion, looks out at their own world, sees similar things, and calls these people wicked. And, and that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I think we too, we long, we demand that such people, that they would face consequences for their actions. We celebrate when someone like Larry Nassar is convicted. We're thankful that the officer who killed George Floyd is charged and convicted. We long for justice against political figures, men in power who abuse women, and are able to use their power to avoid consequence or prosecution. What's interesting in the psalm is that when you initially read it, it seems like the author lays out this very simple black and white world, right? Where good people, the righteous flourish, and bad people, the wicked fail and perish. The good guys win, the bad guys lose. But is that really what we see in our world? Is that even what the author of the psalms saw in their day? No, I don't think so. I think if, if you read the whole of the book of Psalms, if you took the whole thing in consideration and thought of this as an introduction, you would see that the righteous aren't always winning, that the wicked seem to be getting away with too much. It's the same in our world today, right? 
And so, no, I think something else is happening here. I think the author of this psalm would have been familiar with a sentiment that we read in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me, let me read it to you here, another poetic book in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 8:14. there is something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. And so I think what the author is pointing us towards is not some kind of simple uh, karma that happens in the 60 or 80 years that we live on this earth. I think instead Psalm 1 is about what happens in the grand scheme of eternity. It's about a longing for justice. That while evil and wickedness may flourish in this world, while people may get away with all kinds of terrible things, that in the end God will not allow those who commit injustice and evil to go unpunished. And the author of this psalm is writing from a place of longing, a place of hope for a world in which evil and the evil and the wicked will not reign. It's a psalm of hope. It's a psalm of hope for a world of justice. The psalm is hoping for a world in which verses 5 and 6, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. What is the author saying? They're saying that the wicked won't always get away with their evil forever. Their schemes won't always work, that one day the righteous, the good guys, will win. Those who are virtuous will be acknowledged. They will stand out from the wicked. And the author of this psalm is laying out an ideal, one in which God will know, honor, and reward the way of the righteous. They will flourish, but the wicked and the unjust will face justice. And I want to pause there. Even though this, this kind of text I know can sometimes make us feel uncomfortable, and remember that this psalm reflects a longing for justice from the heart of the psalmist. And we really can't skip past that without distorting our, own, our understanding of the text. The psalmist longs to see the wicked face their crimes and the righteous rewarded for their virtue. And this is completely understandable. And each of us, regardless of our faith commitments, longs for the same thing. I really do believe that. Have you ever protested something that you found wrong? Have you ever cried out, not just to God, to someone for justice after a school shooting? No, I think all of us in our hearts long for justice. And I think about this a lot, that this longing for justice, there's some this unique dynamic that I think that's really true, though, is we can't have justice without judgment. There is no justice without some kind of judgment. And the words that we read in this psalm are intense, but they're understandable words from someone to God who had a real life, real experiences. But I want to also ask the question, how are the words of Psalm 1 God's words to us? How is this psalm that second category as well? Uh, I mentioned earlier there are a couple of general ways to apply a psalm like this uh, to our lives and to read it as God's words to us. First, we can do kind of the general universal principle approach. Uh, and, and then the, and from the world of the psalmist to our own. We've, we've kind of begun to do that. I hope you're already getting a sense of that principle. But Psalm 1 is essentially saying this, that righteousness leads to flourishing. Wickedness leads to death, ultimately. Righteousness leads to flourishing. Wickedness leads to death. That's a principle that's true in this psalm and true in our world that we could hope and apply and long for. This is what the psalmist is hoping for that when we see this, and when that we see this as God's words to us, that we read this as something that God promises us too, that our world that we see with all of its brokenness, that, that it's also true that righteousness will eventually lead to flourishing, wickedness will eventually lead to death. The wicked will be punished, the, right, the righteous will be honored, the righteous will flourish and live, and the wicked will perish and die. And hopefully this should feel like good news, but I think for all of us it also feels like bad news, right? Why? Because we, you and I, everyone in this room, 
we are all a mixture of righteousness and unrighteousness. We all have times in which we are virtuous and times in which we are immoral to our own standards, let alone biblical ones. Even if we don't even accept any kind of external standard of morality outside of ourselves, who of us even lives up to our own moral standards all the time? The Psalms understand this. Uh, earlier we read from Psalm 23, one of the most popular Psalms. Let me read from another famous one, Psalm 51. This one uh, is about repentance. Listen to this, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your, your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The psalmist knows the guilt and the shame of sin. This is a psalm written by King David, someone who God said was a man after his own heart. It was like, this is a guy that was like me. But this psalm was written after David abused a woman who wasn't his wife. Bathsheba would go on to murder her husband in an attempt to cover it all up. And our wickedness might not feel as extreme as that, but I think the seeds of that in our own hearts are very similar. We all have wickedness and evil, unrighteousness in our past, things that we are so deeply ashamed of that we wish no one would ever find out. Selfish things that we've done or that we feel. We are all a mixture of this evil and that we hate and we rail against and this righteousness that we love and long to see more of in our world. Uh, you may have heard of Roman, the book of Romans, Romans 3, another popular famous verse, Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, it says this, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul wrote these words, but he's quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. No one is righteous, not even one. So, just like the writer of Psalm 1, we long for this justice and this world in which everyone gets the right due for their actions, but we also have this personal problem. We aren't righteous. We are also those who are wicked. But this is where the good news comes. Remember when I said there's that second way that we can apply the Psalms as God's words to us to see how they point us to Jesus? That's what Psalm 1 is going to do for us now, pointing us towards the one entirely righteous person, the only one who's ever lived that was never wicked, the sinless Savior who can make the wicked, even us, righteous. He is the answer to David's prayer in Psalm 51, for God to plot out his transgressions, to cleanse him from his sin. And if we read this properly, Jesus is the one who the Psalms inevitably point us towards, for he is God's ultimate word to us. I'm jumping all over the Bible, I understand that, but I'm also wanting you to get a sense of how the Psalms are used throughout all of Scripture uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter, he's going to quote from Psalm 34. And this is 1 Peter 3, verse 12, quoting Psalm 34, verse 16. 
And he's going to quote a line that sounds a lot like what we just read in Psalm 1. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but his ears are attentive to their prayer. And his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We see this dichotomy of righteous and evil. Again, this gap between how God interacts with the wicked and how he interacts with the righteous. But Peter's going to go on to explain who closes this gap. He says of Jesus, just two verses later, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And so if we are to read and apply Psalm 1 well, we will read it and see that principle. Righteousness leads to flourishing. Wickedness leads to death. And then we'll read this as God's words to us and we'll grapple with our own wickedness and our own need for a savior. And then we will run and turn to Jesus whose death is able to make the unrighteous righteous. The one whose death is able to give us life. And when we do that, when we make that turn, when we see Jesus in Psalm 1, and then we make the turn to him, this psalm becomes that third way of reading the psalms. It becomes then our words to God. It becomes the message that we share with others and proclaim to the world. And this is how I want to close the sermon today. Uh, I'm going to break Psalm 1 into three sections. And in light of all that we've considered today, I'm going to read it and then pray. And I want you to just feel free to pray silently with me as we read and pray through this verse to close. Starting in verse 1 and 2. Blessed, and I want you to think about Jesus, too, in the middle of this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is on the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. God, thank you for Jesus, the blessed man who did this, who gathered with common people, did not seek power amongst the corrupt religious and political leaders of his day, but who delighted in your law. Lord, make us like him. Allow us to make your word our highest standard. To seek, let us seek and understand and obey it. Let your law and your words be more important to us than the opinions of others. Let me read verses three and four. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Let's pray. Lord God, we see the gap between ourselves, wicked, fickle, temporary, and Jesus, who is strong, stable, and everlasting and flourishing. We see how he came to give life, and yet we too often have turned astray. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you love us anyway. Make us like him, resilient, fruitful, and prosperous. Let me read the the final words of Psalm 1, verses 5 through 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Let's pray. God, all of us long for a world in which the guilty and the wicked are held accountable, but we also at the same time grieve and acknowledge our own guilt and sin. We know that the only way, the only way that we can stand before you as righteous is through your son, Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf and offers us salvation, forgiveness, cleansing, freedom, righteousness. God, save us. Save those around us. Let us become like Jesus in our own lives, Lord, and save us, the wicked, who deserve justice but long for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.